Here in Orlando, Florida, O-Town Compost is leading the composting revolution, recycling organic waste into a nutrient-rich resource. Join Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, as we hear from the nation's leading voices behind the grassroots community composting movement. Welcome to the Community Composting Podcast. Please rate and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. If you feel like this is good content and you're learning a lot about composting. Hey, I'm here with Justin, a veteran compost. This is episode number 31 of the Community Composting Podcast. Justin, uh, you're the founder of Veteran Compost, founded in 2010. And uh, I just learned that you have two composting sites, one outside D.C., and one north of Baltimore, kind of in that, uh, uh, you know, Virginia, D.C., Maryland area. Um, Could you tell us how, you know, you really got started and, you know, what is it looking like now for you? Sure. No, thanks for having me. This is fun. I guess you picked Tim Bennett before me. I don't know what's up with that. (laughs) Yeah, sorry about that. That's okay. (laughs) I will take, looked at the guest list. I don't know. I guess I'm 31st best composter in the country. <laughs> yeah, that's why we interviewed us first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, no, I started in 2010. So, um, you know, that kind of makes me, it's interesting in this industry, it makes me kind of the older of the newer generation, I guess. So the rare middle-aged person in this industry, you know. Um, so you got the folks that are from the 80s and 90s of composting and then you know, I'd say, uh, I kind of showed up as things got going again for the industry. And then now, man, the last like five, eight years has been awesome for the industry. So for growth and new people and all that. So I started in 2010, you know, long story short, people don't need to hear the whole sob story, but I came back from the army from Iraq and I didn't have a job. So I wanted to do something in sustainability. And when you look at recycling, composting, is just unbelievable. The opportunity, right? Two thirds of every trash truck is full of compostable waste. So all this raw material, and, you know, huge demand, I think, for the products that we make, you know, if you make good ones with compost and potting mixes and stuff like that. So just saw an opportunity to take a waste no one wanted and make something people do want, just like probably a lot of people that find themselves in this, just, you know, you're attracted to that waste. And then as the years have gone on, I've become more and more interested in the, the finished products more than sticking my head in the dumpster. Now that, not that I don't still do that on a, on a daily basis. <laughs> Yeah, because veteran compost, you're doing both the processing of food waste into compost, making, you know, valuable end products. Uh, Looks like you have biochar, vermicompost, even. But you also do a fair amount of uh, commercial and residential collection. Could you talk uh, a little bit, like, first of all, how many how big is the business now and how many employees, what area are you servicing? So we have two facilities, one in Alexandria, Virginia, um, just next to Fort Belvoir. We didn't plan on ending up near military bases, but it just kind of worked out. So we're in uh, near Fort Belvoir in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, and that's where all of our residential material goes. And like our, our, we do some office and like commercial stuff in DC. So that facility handles all that material and we just process what we collect. We don't take any outside material there except for, you know, tree chips or arbor chips. 
And then we have another facility in, in Aberdeen, Maryland, which is about 30 minutes north of Baltimore. That's the first site we started in 2010. And um, there we take all the material that we collect in the Baltimore Annapolis area from commercial customers, as well as take in material from um, some outside haulers, you know, mostly pre-consumer or product destruction type stuff. So like pallets of uh, expired products, or we take in like roll off and compactor dumpsters from people like waste management and other, you know, dumpster hauling type accounts. Um, so we take in both of those things at, at our facility. Um, Which yeah. feedstock do you prefer? The one that takes mostly residential and your own material or the commercial uh, one that takes also outside material? It's pretty nice, you know, to sit back and have material brought to you. So to not have to go out and work for it and deal with the flat tires and the truck and driver issues and things like that. I mean, we have a great, we have great drivers. We, we try to maintain a good fleet. Like I like all our people I'm not trying to work them out of a job or anything like that. It's just that um, it is nice when, when we can get, you know, eight to 16 tons of, of lettuce from, from vertical farms brought to our doorstep and charge people a tipping fee. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, that there's not a stick of trash in the thing and, and, it can be processed pretty easy. So like in the right situation, like produce and pre-consumer material brought to us is, is ideal. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, we collect because we have to, you know, it's, it's a, we, you can't depend on other people to bring stuff to you. And we want to make sure we're always sourcing really good feedstock. So we collect uh, as a means to feed our compost facilities. Um, now I love collecting and interacting with folks like the residential is awesome. You know, we're making a big impact and helping kind of, you know, get, people composting all over the area and, and the commercial is cool, but uh, selfishly it's for us, it's, it's a way a means to access feedstocks. Right. Um, I'm, I'm honestly surprised by that answer because, um, you know, I just figured if you're in control of the feedstock, you are able to nip contamination in the bud versus, you know, you got to go through your hauler. Uh, but are you, what is, how do you uh, face contamination? What kind of procedures are in place uh, for you to combat contamination at that, um, you said the Aberdeen site? Right. So over, over the years, we've probably on the commercial side of things, we probably said no to more like total accounts than we've said yes to because of concerns so about contamination. No, that's important. Yeah. And I mean, once again, look, yeah. when I started, man, once again, we could give me a beer in two hours of your time. I'll give you the whole sad story um, of how tough it was when we started this thing or when I started this thing. I was a one man show and took 18 months to get the profitability. So I, I was not in the sitting in the, the catbird seat for, for selecting accounts. So but at the end of the day, like I want to make good compost. And you know, my theory is always that if you make good stuff, everything else will fall in line. If you're focused on a great compost at the back end then your operations and your facilities and the, the people you work with and how you do business is all going to get in line with that. So, um, you know, we just try to invest in like doing walkthroughs with customers to, Hey, let's, let's walk through, let's, let's follow the process. Um, let's kind of look for issues like, like, let's say in like a university setting, um, you know, you got packets of ketchup let's go to the number 10 can in the pump with, with compostable little ramekins. And then we never have to worry about, 
uh, you know, little packets ending up in the waste stream for us. And then number two, hey, food service director, you're going to save money on this scheme. So it's an easy sell for that. So we try to look at what are the potential contaminants. Let's do some training with staff. That's always great. Let's get signage up. Um, and then like we do a lot of healthcare stuff. And luckily, a lot of the hospitals in our area use third party uh, on site consultants, not waste brokers that break my knees on prices, like actually helpful waste consultants that work with green teams and staffs at big institutions to continue to work on recycling goals and, and clean feedstocks. So they're helping us with contaminants. They're helping make sure the right stuff gets in the cardboard baler. You know, they're there helping all the different streams stay clean. So like we like, there's certain companies that do that. And whenever they call us on a job, yeah, man, sign me up. We know that that's going to be a good project for us. Oh, that's great. And that's so different from here in Florida. There's like one uh, waste consultant in town and uh, most of our commercial opportunities, we have to, you know, do it ourselves is make the sale ourselves or um, it comes from a, a third party waste broker. Yeah, no one's ever said I'm really excited a broker got involved in this deal. So that's not that's yeah. not something I've heard in the compost industry. So we, we get them. Um, we get very few brought to us by brokers. Usually bro we're working with someone we've tracked down and helped over the years, and then they hire a broker and then they bring in the lead pipe to our knees on pricing, which is always a good way to get paid back for your hard work. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we did the same thing. Most of our customers we work with directly, we contract with directly. Um, and then we always like to have a relationship with them to help them out um, if they need something from us or also a way to feedback to them of, Hey, we're having an issue or we're seeing this in your bins, you know, and then they can help us track down how to get that out of the bins. Maybe there's a, a new person or a new process or a new supplier of a material. And then we can kind of work backwards together to solve that. And uh, what, what are the tipping fees you're charging and versus the nearby landfill fees in, you know, Maryland? Yeah, unfortunately our, our food scrap tipping fee is, capped because of, uh, you know, municipal facility in the state. So like Prince George's County, it's the other food scrap compost facility in the, in the state and they're at 45 a ton. So we're at 45 a ton. Uh, yeah. I'd like to go higher. I think we deserve to go higher, but you know, our competition is a, a entity that does not care about the laws of economics. So we are capped at, you know, to match theirs at 45 a ton that the trash fee is, somewhere in the 60s or $70 range. I mean, and going mm -hmm. higher. So like landfills, you're not going to build a new landfill in the state. You're not going to build a new incinerator. So I think, I don't know what the stats are right now in Maryland, but I'd say like there's a lot of parts of our state where we're a trash exporter, you know, for sure, where we're putting it on trains and sending it to less affluent areas in the country, which, you know, well, just don't think about it or talk about it. You know, if you're, yeah. people there's just put on the train, look, people put their can at the curb and look the other way. <laughs> environmental justice is definitely an yeah. part of Right. Just don't think do. about it. Right. That's what people do. Yeah. But um, it, it sounds like veteran compost is very well positioned after the recent organics mandate passed in the state of Maryland. Have you seen like what has been, uh, what's it been like on, you know, the ground there in Maryland with a newly passed organics ban of what is it? One ton generators producing one ton a week. Yeah, it's not going well. So I, I would, I oppose the bill. <laughs> really? That's why, that's why I'm not uh, invited to any composter events in my region. 
So we oppose, we oppose the food waste bill, uh, food waste ban. So unfortunately, like if you think about it, and this is what we testified to is when you need trash service, you don't call the landfill, you call a trash collector. So we've already seen it this year where we have helped people sign up for compost service or in the hauler that's supposed to bring it to us, takes it to the landfill every day. We don't get dumpsters for months from some accounts. And these are people that are paying for compost service, think they're getting compost service. There's no mechanism to make sure that your compost goes to a compost facility. So I'm actually have, I actually have less tonnage coming to me right now um, than when this bill got announced. And so I think the bill's a, is that the, it, it was, it was, it was, it was well-intentioned by many, mm-hmm. but just, uh, you know, we made some suggestions on execution and those were, those were all left out. What, so there's no enforcement for haulers to follow through with what they say. We, I have pictures over the years and videos over the years of, of haulers taking compostables to transfer stations in the state. No one cares. No one cares. Yeah. So like that's, there's like, there's no mechanism to make sure that your compostables go to a compost facility in the state. What um, mechanisms would you suggest or did suggest? Well, I mean, it comes back to, you know, um, the things that hold back composting in this area, maybe it's different in other people's parts of the country, but for us, it's, you know, access to land. Um, we're not welcome to build anywhere. Uh, every time I come to a neighborhood, I get thrown out. Number number two, um, unfair municipal competition. Like I said, the other all the other compost facilities in this state are, are run by uh, public entities. So they're pricing, they, they give away the compost and they don't charge enough on a tipping fee. Uh, number three is, is regulations. So like it's we're working on building a new facility. And I say new, we've been trying for eight years. So we've been in the permitting and design phase and stalled on construction for eight years for our third facility. Um, and then the fourth thing is, is uh, you know, labor. There's just no one that wants to do this job. So we need help with, with finding a, a pipeline of talent. So, um, you know, those are the, the challenges we face. And unfortunately, like the food waste ban didn't address any of those issues. People kind of said, oh yeah, those are all good suggestions, but man, those sound really tough to solve. So we're going to do this food waste ban. So once again, I understand that some people, um, you know, they want to try to do the right thing and move the, move the ball forward. So that's, you know, to be appreciated. It's just unfortunate that like, I, I don't, I think this bill overall is going to hurt us because people are going to sign up for compost service and that trash truck's going to steam around and just take it wherever. Yeah. Um, so in Florida, so we do have even less composting infrastructure than Maryland or Virginia. And, um, they, you know, last year it was, they also proposed a mandate, an organics um, diversion mandate of generators up to a ton a week. And I was thinking to myself, like, how is this going to happen? You know, there's nowhere to take it. And us being the only composter, we would probably be overwhelmed with inquiries. I mean, obviously, I love the idea. I, I think organics diversion needs to happen, but you're right. I think they should focus on building the infrastructure out, making sure that haulers, you know, these publicly traded haulers are not just taking the easy route to the landfill. But yeah, that's very interesting um, to hear what it's like. It sounds like the organics ban is working pretty well in states like Massachusetts and Vermont, but um, you know, they've been at it for way longer. 
So I hope there in Maryland, you guys, it'll eventually, you know, become uh, easy for you guys, a little easier at least. Yeah, we'll see. Like I said, I don't want to come across as negative guy or tinfoil hat guy. It's not me uh, or who I want to be known as. But, you know, we have some concerns and, and we're already seeing like we reached out to every generator that would be that would fall under that law in our radius. We reached out to every recycling office in the radius for each of the counties and municipalities and not one person replied to us. You know, hey, we see this new laws coming. We'd love to work with you. Hey, can we talk to you? Not one person has reached back out to us. Um, so I imagine, you know, what's the mechanism for enforcing it and what's the mechanism for making sure that that stuff goes where it's supposed to. Because like I said, we have one customer who's supposed to send us 10 tons a day and we've gotten, so what is it? We're eight weeks into the year. We should have gotten uh, 32 dumpsters from them and we've gotten three. Mm -hmm. And they think they're compost and they're paying for compost service and, you know, waste management just doesn't bring us the dumpster. So we're going to do yeah, that's a bummer. I just Shout think of um, like Connor, the owner of black earth compost in, in Massachusetts, when that ban went into effect in 2014, that first year alone, he added like 2000 new accounts. So I wonder what the difference is, but, um, yeah, I don't. I definitely yeah, I don't know. Once again, yeah. I don't want to be a negative guy. I don't want to stymie the growth of the industry. But uh, yeah, I don't want to question what you're seeing. The front line, the front line guy. No one likes to hear about from the front lines, right? <laughs> I see that in the news today. So no one wants to hear about the front no. lines. So, yeah. <laughs> well, um, what what are the capacities at your two composting sites currently, and uh, what you know? How is the process working so far? We do uh, aerated static piles. So um, we do positive ASP at both our sites. So we have some bunkers, uh, like our Alexandria site is a couple of bunkers. And those guys do um, probably like two, two tons a day of food waste. They're probably somewhere around like 10 tons a week um, at that site, plus all the wood chips. And then our site in Aberdeen is probably um, anywhere from like 10 to 30 tons a day. So we're probably... We're probably doing around 100 tons a week with with room to go to 150 tons a week or more if we wanted. Um, so, you know, our permit in in Maryland, we're only permitted on our output, not our inbound material. So like kind of makes for some interesting opportunities for us. And we kind of can govern how much comes in the gate. We just have to watch what goes out. And as then, far um, as that volume, like you're capped at a certain volume or... So the permit we operate in, in Maryland, uh, there's a couple of different tiers based on feedstocks and tonnage. So we're considered like a tier two small at that facility. So um, we're allowed to bring in uh, a couple of different kinds of feedstocks, pretty much everything but biosolids. And then we're allowed to produce up to 10,000 cubic yards a year of finished compost. So, but if you compost, you know, there's all kinds of different levers you could pull. You could start doing all kinds of changing up your screens and your moisture content and all that stuff. If you wanted to either grow to 10,000 yards or, you know, hide and start shrinking yeah. down. You know, what about just like curing offsite? I mean, Oh yeah. Right. Well you self-report, you know, I mean, we, yeah. we, we, the one bad thing in business is I, I was a Eagle scout in the army and business ethics and doing the right thing is like a nagging, business handicap so if you don't do the right thing yeah there's a lot of ways around yeah, that. yeah. i got it this bad habit of telling the truth man it's been kicking my ass yeah. for 12 years of business so 
it is important to you know i'm just going on the record it is important to no you're good follow, <laughs> follow you're your my taxes this year, it sounds like all right <laughs> <laughs> um but um yeah so and you know how did you start that that's pretty good it sounds like you have like a mid-scale facility there in arlington and then your other one is pretty darn big but uh how did how did you first start when you founded the the company start composting it's probably like a lot of people so I, I just googled everything i could and you know back in 2010 2009 you know i was researching this you could count the number of food scrap composters on on one hand in the mid-atlantic maybe two if you included a couple other people so I just started like calling people or go visit sites. A uh, few folks were nice enough to let me walk around and, and check things out. You know, I had a whole plan in mind of doing windrow composting. And then I vet, went to see Ned Foley at two particular acres and then totally came on board with the idea of, uh, you know, ASP composting. And then I worked with Peter from O2 for years. So, I, you know, that was kind of good. I started out just doing horse manure as my first pile with bedding. Cause that's like an easy win. And then added in food scraps and then we're now manure free. So we're just wood chips and food scraps. I don't grind and I don't handle manure, biosolids or yard debris right now. Um, we are going to get back into manure with the next facility, but, um, yeah, I started out small. I mean, it's like probably the recommendation I would hope a lot of people have in this is, you know, start out small first couple piles, make some mistakes, learn from them. And then as you scale, you already got the mistakes out of your system, hopefully, or the big ones. And then, uh, you know, just take the other challenges as they come. So it took me six months to get my first food waste customer. It took me like a year and a half to get to break even. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's not, it's probably a little bit easier now. Like when you go around and talk to people and say, you're doing composting, I'm, I'm sure it's not totally easy in, in central Florida, uh, I mean, every time I go down there, I fly home with my recyclables and I wonder if that's more carbon appropriate than just trashing them or, you know, we have that debate in my house as I'm checking a bag of aluminum cans back with me. Um, but you know, nowadays I think people get it more and, and for us, like in DC, like with our residential, there's a lot of folks there that are from other parts of the country. So, Hey, I was in San Francisco or Seattle and now I'm here. And the idea of not composting is, is crazy. So where do I sign up? So there's like that's good to see as people move around the country and these ideas move around the country that, you know, once you compost your recycle, you can't not compost or recycle as you go other, other places, you know? So. Right. And I, I mean, I would say that your area, I look at your, your region, the mid Atlantic, and I see a lot of community composters springing up and uh, you know, there's the OGs like you and Tim Bennett, uh, but also they're, you know, the, the, there is a lot of people paying attention to waste um, and, you know, state policy towards reducing that waste. D I mean, do you ever work with the other, like the other composters, like um, Compost Crew? We interviewed them. And then, um, you know, maybe some of the, the, the Baltimore collective or I forget the name of the, that composter in Baltimore, but I know that there's a fair amount, the compost cab, uh, you ever like, you know, what, what is the competition? Like, I guess, if you consider them competition. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you would hope it's like a blue ocean type scenario. Like mm-hmm. when you look at the industry, I mean, there is a little bit of back and forth where, you know, there's only so many, there's like, we're in the early adoption phase, right? For a lot of parts of the country. So there's like going to be that early adoption crowd that will all kind of go after because the next phase where you got to do a little more education and wait a little bit longer, a little yeah. bit tougher to sell to. But I think there's enough room for everybody. I mean, I you know, we have not had where we run into people too much. I mean, there's situations where you bid on jobs and they want to get numbers from a couple of people, but you know, I mean, I try, I would like to think that I try to stay friendly with everybody and there's enough room for everybody. So, I mean, especially when you just look at the larger picture of the absolute total mulch and soil business on the back end and, and the amount of waste on the front end, it's like, well, we could all chase down a couple of environmental nonprofit lobbying offices in downtown DC for office service, or we could just, think of it in a broader perspective of, of maybe going after other people. So we don't, nobody tips to us, other, other collectors. Like we only take our post-consumer material Um, just because it'd be a little weird if you were taking other people's material and whatever. But um, no, I I think there's enough room. I mean, there's, there's more than one trash company in every town, right? So there should be plenty of room for more than one compost company. And, you know, hopefully the pie grows and everybody can have their slice. Right. There is plenty enough food waste for everyone, but you are in that early adopter phase where it's, you know, you're all all kind of going after a small fraction of the people. Uh, Have you guys like bid on RFPs from municipalities? Um, You know, what kind of RFPs, if so? We have done some RFPs. I mean, I prefer to do like for food scrap collection, like, um, you know, we have a couple of, of government contracts. I'd say that we're not, I'm like me personally, it's a lot of homework they make you do and there's no insurance that you're going to get it. Um, that being said, we, we, we do bid on them when we think we have a good fighting chance or it's a project we'd like to be a part of, but there's also you know times where you kind of feel like they're just looking for a, another number to put on the wall to say they tried. So, you know, we try to sniff those out. Um, but a lot of our customers on the commercial side, it's a, it's a vast majority is um, private, you know, cause we can do a private deal, even large like hospitals and, hand, and supermarkets. Sometimes that's as simple as doing a visit and a handshake and it's done um, because, you know, what we try to sell on, like for our, for our business, like we do a clean bin swap, which not everybody does. Um, so residential and commercial, you get a clean bin every time, which I think is important. And that's a differentiator for us. Hold uh, up. We, Cause that is, that? that is very unique for a lot of community composters. I mean, we do a, a clean bucket swap, but, uh, the clean like toter swap that was, uh, you know, we decided to switch from that to just emptying toters and replacing the liner, the compostable liner, just cause we felt like some of those 64 gallon bins can be a few hundred pounds. So it was just too much wear and tear. So yeah, I would love to know, like, you know, how are your drivers feeling? Why did you make that decision? It started at the beginning at a necessity. So like my first collection vehicle, I had a, I drove a Chevy trailblazer and I bought a 10 foot trailer used on Craigslist for 450 bucks. So still have the trailer, put new bearings on it and keep that thing rolling every year. Um, for us too we yeah. had to do it because we had a trailer so right so i swap bins because i don't have anything to dump this thing into 
Um, and then we've ended up sticking with it because I think it's a big selling point. So like you talked about the early adopters, well, the next, the, what are the biggest stalls and objections to this, to doing composting is um, one of them is going to be odors and the ick factor and all that. Well, Hey, I, I give you a clean bin twice a week. Does, does your trash company do that? No, man, that dumpster's gross. So like, yeah. you know, we get a lot of jobs because um, you know, we use non-traditional trucks. So like we use steak body and box trucks for our commercial work in Baltimore. And so I can do loading docks. Um, you know, I don't need it at ground level. So a lot of our customers love that. And then the one for one swap, you know, people can take our bins and put them right into the kitchen and, you know, health department, you know, food safety, kind of everybody gives it the thumbs up. So that's kind of where I guess, you know, one of the things like it differentiates us, especially like, you know, so we like, you know, we, we try to sell on service because, you know, if you're selling on price, there's always going to be someone new that's hungry, that's going to come in and, and, you know, it's a race to the bottom. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that's one of our calling cards is the clean bin swap. Now, is it a bummer in January when it's 10 degrees here and we're trying to wash toters? Like, yeah, that's not, that's not super fun. Um, and would it be, you know, we, we look at, you know, at some point, do we need to change equipment to like a brown industrial type truck where we'd wash them? on site with a power washer, you know, that's probably something we'll continue to debate. Um, but right now it's, it's a one for one swap. So roughly how many residential and commercial clients do you have? Residential we're at like, uh, probably around 3000. Um, and those are all like full rate payers. So we don't have any, um, like municipal contracts. So they're all, right. you know, private, private contracted, individual contracted. And then, um, the commercial, yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know if I know the answer to that one. Uh, just like a, a hundred, 200. Yeah, probably, probably somewhere around there. Wow. Um, our, so- our bread and butter is like hospitals that have say, like we have a lot of hospitals, you know, the average customers are maybe like eight sixty four gallon toters twice a week or something like that. Mm-hmm. So like a 400, a 400 bed hospital or something like that. We do, we do a lot of healthcare, um, mm-hmm. groceries, stuff like that. That's awesome. But I imagine you have some full-time staff washing buckets and toters. Right. Right. No, there's people that's their assigned job. So, yeah. um, you know, we have one guy in Aberdeen that is our primary toter washer. We have a couple guys uh, in Alexandria that, that, that wash as well. And you use pressure washer or what's the best way to clean them? Uh, the guys in Virginia do like almost like a three bin sink, like you're uh, camping, you know, you got like your, your soapy, your rinse and your bleach. And then in uh, the cool thing there is they run um, hoses into the compost pile to, and then pump it out for circulate water. So we have warm water in the winter. Cause we like the first year we did that, everyone's hands were freezing. So now they actually circulate like 140 degree water into the wash basins. So then they have to actually add cold water to get it to like, Cause then it was too hot. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so we do some water, some water, um, use the piles for hot water in the winter. And then in Aberdeen, we just have like, uh, the guys, we line the bins and that helps with a lot of the issues The when I first started, I didn't line them and I'd be out there in the winter with like ice scrapers, you know, chiseling out spaghetti sauce and all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And that's not a good way to live. So now we have a better system for trying to prevent stuff from sticking. And then our guys are, pretty well equipped with like a biodegradable degreaser and brushes and stuff like that. So a little bit of elbow grease still is the best way to go. Um, but they kind of have it, have it figured out. No, it's really interesting. So many clients. 
As you start to take on more food scraps, you realize very quickly that you need a better composting system to process the material. This is why I highly recommend the aerated static pile micro bin designed and made easy by O2 Compost. In 60 days, I have finished compost without putting in the labor of turning the pile. The piles heat up to over 140 degrees, killing pathogens, weed seeds, and fly larvae, making the end product safe to use in the garden. With 32 plus years of experience in the compost industry, Peter Moon, owner of O2 Compost, is a leading expert in the field of ASP composting. I encourage you to set up a free half an hour consultation with Peter Moon by going to his website www.o2compost.com. That's the letter O, the number two, compost.com. If you mentioned that you heard about O2 Compost on this podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount on the purchase of the Microbin Compost Training Program. And I, I know that you really stress the importance of your your final product, the compost, you know, what's, uh, you know, what do you feel like is the, the, the secret sauce in making good compost and what are, talk a little bit about the different products you make in addition. It's tough. Cause there's like the things, the compost I want to sell people. And then there's the compost they want to buy. And unfortunately those things are not do not, they're not the same thing. So like we were, we had this discussion in the office yesterday, like people, um, because of what they buy at the store, it's kind of like, I, like we're probably doing a video on this sometime soon on our, our social media is like, there's the milk you buy at Walmart. It's fine. It's milk. Great. And then there's the milk I buy from the dairy farm down the road for me. And there's like that fat at the top of the thing. And I really got to shake it. And mm. you're like, well, that's not really homogenous, man. It's a little lumpy or there's a little bit extra fat. Well, but I can see that cow and I can meet the guy who put it in the bottle versus the Walmart milk from, you know, Russia or wherever it comes from. So, um, it's kind of like that with our compost people for years have been buying it at the store and they're used to this like fine granular type material. And then we sell something that's, you know, if you go on our website, our frequent asked questions, like half the FAQs are like, Hey, we know our compost is chunky. No, we didn't sell you mulch. Um, <laughs> cause we get that like all the time. People want us to sell them like pharmaceutical grade dust. Um, yeah. which I get, like, that's what you used to see in the store, but like, we like a compost that is like a half inch screened, um, like where we're at, there's, it's interesting in the Maryland area for the most part, it's clay. And then you get down closer to Chesapeake Bay and on the Eastern shore, it's Sandy. So like odds are you either need us to help you break up some clay or you need our help retaining moisture. And in either way, like larger particles uh, are going to help with that. Right. Um, so that's where we try to do some education. We actually have a soil scientist. Um, on our staff, Julie, who's been with us for a couple of years and really helped us the last couple of years, like refine our internal QAQC. We do some uh, external lab testing throughout the year. And then we do a lot of germination and growth trials as we, you know, tinker with our formulas and things like that. And so our all natural compost is, is our, our main product. Um, and it's all natural. It's not organic because we take compostable plastics. So we actually work with a chain called mom's organic market. And I, ironically, Mom's Organic Market and their compostable bags are what keep our compost from being organic. Um, we now have a separate pile that we run, completely different tipping area, different equipment, different pile, and that's approved for organic composting. So we have an, a, a separate pile that we run, and we produce the only organic compost in the re, in, in Maryland. Now um, we use like uh, crabs, produce, coffee grounds, and uh, mulch vines 
to make that product, which is kind of cool. So we have two composts. We do the worm castings. We do biochar that we produce on site and then a bunch of blends. So raised bed mix, super soil, and, uh, and a seed starter. So we've done more value added products. You know, you try to work away from commodities and just about anything. You'd rather sell ketchup than tomatoes. So we'd rather sell mixes than, um, than just compost. So we're, we're growing that mm-hmm. each year, more, more mixes, um, becoming a larger and larger, larger portion of our sales. And you guys retail it, retail it or sell it in bulk. And who are your, your customers primarily? Our, our biggest customer chunk is, is direct to consumer. So people that either come pick it up from us. Um, but let's be honest, like we, we live in the age of delivery, right? DoorDash yeah. and Instacart make the world go around or Amazon prime or whatever. So like the, I would say the vast, 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 like 90 plus percent direct to consumer involves us delivering it to folks. So we actually, as much as we can, we try to backhaul on our collection routes. So a lot of our drivers will also deliver bags or small bulk orders while they're out on their route. Like that's, that's the best. You don't ship, you deliver. We do some shipping. So like we actually do pallets on trucks for garden centers and some customers, we mail stuff like smaller portions on our website, like uh, some of our products, because we have people from all over the country that want castings or other stuff. And then, but the vast majority is local customers getting delivery dump trucked or, or, you know, bulk products or, or bagged products. Uh, we are doing more retail this year. Like that's our big focus is, is they get more retailers involved. And so, you know, we're probably at like maybe 30 stores right now. And we're, we're, we're hoping to, to double that this year. Have you broken into Home Depot or Lowe's? We haven't. I mean, we've, we're trying, I mean, I'll take any, anybody anywhere, but I think we've had more traction with like independent garden centers and hardware stores. Um, cause they're really looking to diversify their product mix. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say no to those folks if they approached us, but you know, kind of where I'd rather my goal in general is not to be the largest composter in America. I just want to be the most profitable. Like I want to be the guy that's like, just I, after grinding for 12 years, I kind of want to like find easier ways to make a buck. Not like, I don't, don't want to be scandalous and do shady things. I just, <laughs> yeah. We want to sell like high quality products at a really good price and customers get a great product and we're allowed to make a fair margin. So that's kind of where we're looking at is, you know, what retailers and where are we at? So like the, the part of the country we're in, um, lobster compost, the Costa Maine guys, it's really popular product, really high price point. So we now have a crab compost. So the Chesapeake Bay equivalent of lobster compost and wow. you know, let's go, let's go do something like those guys are doing. Cause that seems to be working well for them. So, um, we haven't done the, the big box stores, but you know, yeah. we, we certainly have the, the ability to do it. We have a bagging machine. We have the material we could, it just, um, it hasn't happened yet. And uh, me and my coworker were just today talking about, you know, what is a good bag um, for compost that holds its integrity. We started off with just those craft leaf bags and, we quickly realized that uh, those break if you leave them sitting for more than like a day. So we left a couple messes on people's front porch. Um, what, where do you get your bags? If you wouldn't mind, you know, telling me the source. So what we've used that's been successful over the years is uh, like sandbag type material. So people look on our website or you wanted to source it yourself like so what we do is um 
we encourage people to either reuse the bags, repurpose them or give them back to us and we'll use them again. So like, you know, you'll go to do a delivery at someone's house and there'll be a pile of bags from last year out front or they'll drop them off um, or they'll find a way. That's one of the things with our retailers we're saying is, hey, take the bags back. That makes people come back to your store and buy some more stuff while they're there at your garden center and then send the bags back to us. Cause that, like, that's one of our things Like we're talking about this spring, a lot of single use plastic as a company, like with a lot of our messaging and like there's a, the Lowe's by my house. It's literally a quarter acre of pallets. I think they distribute to other Lowe's in the area. It's probably a quarter, a half an acre of pallets. So a pallet that's shrink wrapped with plastic inside of it, plastic bags, like how many millions of bags is our industry responsible for? And like, here we are worried about straws. And these are like massive quantities of, of single use plastic. So uh, I like sandbag type bags. Uh, they're a little bit breathable. So they're good for compost products where like for us, we don't want to suffocate our compost. I tried the paper bag thing too, with like worm castings. And then like the bummer is I want to have like a moist compost, not wet, but moist so that the microbes are there and everybody's happy. And, and then, yeah, the bag is no longer a bag and we've tried compostable bags and compostable bags are good at composting, but not good at being bags. Right. Uh, we've done like, like I like, I see some people do bucket sales. I think that's a cool idea where people can use, use pickle buckets or whatever. And that's, that's a good way to reuse a bucket and maybe you they return it to you. On them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I'm all for different ways to be you know, more durable, sustainable packaging in our industry. So like for us, people return the bags. We use like a hand stitcher to seal them. So when they give them back to us, if they open the bottom, we'll fill it back up and we'll stitch the bottom and we can get like at least four or five uses out of our bags. So, I mean, I know it's not like, it's not solving the problem, but at least we're getting more mileage and we're doing something better than what's out there. I, I, I am curious to see what the like sustainable solution is for you know, compost or soil products. Yeah. Cause what we have right now in our industry is not, not good. I mean, all those bags we haven't mulch. found it. I mean, we look at Tilth soil, the, the soil amendment uh, branch of Rust Belt riders, mm-hmm. they use a, a paper bag, but it, it, it is lined with like, you know, plastic or some kind of waxy material on the inside. Mm-hmm. And uh, they get it from Novi bags in Illinois. So we're, we're thinking about that option, but yeah, yeah, that's interesting to say the least. Um, let me ask you, I don't know if you uh, are open to answering this question, but I'm, I'm definitely curious about any composter who's been doing it a while and I consider you successful. So how did you go about like getting the funding to buy the trucks you need for your fleet, the equipment you need for your composting site? I mean, it, it's a grind no matter how, any way you look at it, but nothing is more of a grind than those first couple of years as a community composter, literally just pitchforking out of the micro bin and you know (laughs) using a trailer or your pickup truck to swap buckets um yeah i would say like i'm having like ptsd here man i might need to go drink or something you're bringing back all these memories (laughs) (laughs) so like i always joke it was helpful that i was i was single and didn't have a family i don't i don't know that i would jump into this industry in the same way um 
but yeah, it is, it is tough. It's, it's, it's a really tough business. I mean, I, I put out a YouTube video recently where I was, the first thing I told people was like, maybe you shouldn't do this. Like, I don't want to be negative, but just, just know this is not going to be easy. Um, so I started with the money in my pocket that I saved when I was overseas. So like upside of being in Korea and Iraq for a couple of years is you don't have anywhere to spend the money or not enough of it. So I was really hesitant to ask friends and family for money. Cause I was like, what if I'd never done a business before? I didn't have any background in this. And I was like, if this doesn't go well, like, I don't want to have to like tell my grandma, like, sorry, that money's gone, man. So I, I bootstrapped it and it was really, really tough. I, I bought some really lousy equipment when I started, like I'm all for, I always tell people now, like, I want to be thrifty. I don't want to be cheap. I think that's like a, an important thing. It's like all of our skid loaders that we buy, I'm a, skid loaders are an awesome tool as a composter. Cause you can get a forklift set, you can get a bucket. I buy skid loaders that are a couple years older and have less computers on them because if you follow right to repair and all that stuff, like it, it, newer skid loaders are really expensive to maintain and get parts for. So our skid loaders are a couple years old, but like, I mean, I started with a shovel with that trailer. Um, it's going to be, it's really hard to get a loan. You got to collateralize it. So if you have a house where you want to sign your parents' house to it, you can do that, but there really isn't uncollateralized loans. When I got to break even at like, I was two years in and I was like slightly profitable. And I went back to my bank that I've been with for two years. Cause they tell you have a banking relationship. And I, I gave them all the information and they sent it off to the, some cubicle in Pittsburgh at PNC bank. And the guy said, you haven't been in business for three years, so we can't give you a loan. Well, yeah. I could have told you that, like, did you need an algorithm buddy? Like, yeah, I think look at when I started that darn business. So I was profitable. I still can't get a loan. Uh, now we have a line of credit now, but that, that was probably, six years in that I got the line of credit. The one thing that we've done over the years that's interesting is I have a business credit card. I have a couple, but one is with PNC, my bank. And they're always doing that trick where you probably get them for yourself too, where they give you that, like those paper checks for like 0% APR and you can write a check for anything. So like, I'll go buy a truck for like $25,000 and then I'll be like, cool, I got a year to pay for this thing. Cause I got 0% APR. So let's hustle and pay for this $25,000 check. So we've done that you know, commercial lending, there's private equity out there. So like we use the company, I, I don't get paid for them. I don't know what they're doing now. I'm not going to back them. Like I'm, they don't get my personal guarantee, but just as an example, we used a company called Madison Capital. So they're in Maryland. And when I had to buy a trommel screen from McCloskey, McCloskey doesn't do financing or they didn't at the time. And so these guys, they'll finance anything. You need an ice machine. You need a yacht. Like these guys are private equity. They're like 8%. We'll, we'll, the machines, the collateral. And so we did that for like equipment. So over the years, I've done different things with loans or line of credit or those paper checks or private equity for the equipment. And then I've always tried to cover the working capital out of pocket. Cause it's like, all right, well, this all went toast. Everything that I'm, I owe money on is tied to a piece of equipment. Theoretically, I could go to Ritchie brothers and auction this stuff and I'll walk away. So like if the working capital and all that, now that's tough sometimes. Cause like what if you're having a great year and you got to go buy a bunch more bins? What so, if you got to go, you're halfway to that next driver? The working, ca working capital is like payroll for your employees, yourself. That's like any expenses. If you got to remove mm -hmm. buckets or bins. So, okay. So as long as you're like, you're profitable on the, as long as your revenue is covering your working capital, you are, less concerned about going off and making like a big 
equipment purchase or something. Yeah. And I guess, you know, like once again, you got to make that call. Like now I'm, now I have a mortgage and a wife and two kids. So like, I would say like my decision-making now is different than it was the first couple of years of the business when like I ate ramen every day and not like trendy ramen, like 25 cent ramen, you know, like, and slept on a couch and worked 18 hours a day. Like that was the grind for a while. And like, looking back, it's like, there's probably some smarter ways to do it, but I was so busy when you get in the collection business, sometimes you're so busy running those routes and collecting that you're like operationally keeping up. But like, are you taking, if I just taken an extra hour a week to be strategic, where would I be at? So that was my thing is like, looking back, I wish I had, forced myself to do more like long-term stuff than just being in the moment, you know? Um, but yeah, the funding thing, it's, it's, it is really tough. It is really tough. I look at it the same way. Like if, you know, my month of month working capital is being covered by the monthly revenue, you know, reoccurring, like luckily in this business revenue is pretty easy to estimate. It's mostly reoccurring uh, for residential and it can vary a little bit from commercial perspective, but, um, and we do events, you know, that might add or subtract some revenue every month, but, um, yeah, as long as the working capital is taken care of, I think those big one-off purchases, like that, that's very interesting to hear, like the different scenarios you gave, because I think it either, a, you got to like take a loan um, or B, you know, are you willing to let an equity investor in to like take over part of the company so that you can just all of a sudden just like balloon in size? I mean, have, I'm sure you've been approached by equity investors. What what are what is your thought? Yes, it's, it's interesting in this industry too, because there's, you know, you grow in plateaus, right? Like, I'm sure you get to that point where you're like, I've got enough to have like a half a driver. So do I go get that guy or girl now? Or do I suck it up and I wait till I have, but then if you're driving extra, that's not time you're growing and working on your business. So right. like the plateaus are tough or like equipment. Like I always warn people, like the screening part of making compost is always going to be the butt kicker. Cause what size machine and type of machine you're going to get. And like when I bought my first McCloskey, that machine cost more than everything else I owned in the business at the time. And my hand was like shaking. I bought a McCloskey 407. They don't even make them anymore because they're so small. And McCloskey, it's like a Tuesday. They're like, dude, hurry up. I'm trying to, I got lunch plans. And I'm like, dude, this is a major company <laughs> moment. You know, and they're like, can you, no, like just sign the paperwork, you idiot. Get out of here. So, uh, you know, it's like funny, you know, looking back now, um, but like in terms of investors, you know, I don't know. Like, so our D our company is, is two companies actually. So there's like the Maryland operation, the Aberdeen facility that, that I own and run. And then our DC operation, I actually do have a partner. So my partner Fritz, who's a, an army vet is uh, owns and runs that with me and operates that day to day. So like in that case, like that is a, a situation where um, I'd actually started a, a franchise. Like someone approached me and said, Hey, I'd like to open a, the way I got into residential business is someone wanted to open a residential collection veteran compost franchise. And then, you know, he got started and it was really successful and he had, he didn't want to leave his regular job. So he wasn't quite sure what to do. So, you know, Fritz and I got together and, you know, purchased back the, the franchise and, and, and now run that together. So um, that was one scenario, you know, where I did have a, a, an investor and then that, that works out, you know, great. Cause I can focus on the Maryland thing and day to day, he can focus on that. But I think, 
you know, with any business, if you're going to look at investors or people taking equity, you just got to be mindful of like, what are their goals and what's their timeline? You know, what if things are going along great and you're in, and, and you're like, man, we're really close to getting to that next point I want to be at. And that person says, all right, well, buy me out because I'm done. I'm, I'm going to go buy a house or I'm, I'm ready to go to Tahiti, man. So like, you think you got to really know that person or and what their goals are and what their timeline is. Because, you know, just in general in small business, I'm sure you hear, you know, all kinds of stories about restaurant owners that, you know, their equity partners change their mind or sell out or they lose the operational control of their own business or something like that. So you just got to, it's tempting, but I think you just have the right scenario and the right person involved. Right. Yeah. Well, all that is very valuable advice. Um, thank you so much for your time, Justin. Uh, we should, you know, definitely chat again. Um, and best of luck to you out there. Thanks, man. I'll, next time I'm down that way, I'll come hang. My my wife's family lives in the Tampa area, so I'll come over and please do. Yeah, I'll come pay a visit. <laughs> All right. Have a good rest of the day. All right. Thanks. You too. Okay. Bye bye. If you enjoy the Community Composting Podcast and want to support future episodes, please follow the link in the episode show notes to give a small monthly reoccurring donation even if it's five to ten dollars a month we'll continue to come out with killer content to keep the grassroots movement rolling